one year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money in over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love being trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Herb Lennon Game Magazine. Instruction from Herb Lennon. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads. Two information, trapping radios. We are trappers in ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet that's working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very bullshit saying the trap, you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Oh, back in the fur shed. Trapping today. Good to be here. Back in a fully utilized fur shed that actually smells and looks like a fur shed. We've got, oh, Four or five fishers drying, a couple otters, a few beavers, a couple of martin. So yeah, it's good trying to kind of get things all put up and stretched and dried so that I can start cleaning up this fur shed and doing some other things. So it's good to be here, guys. We're brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Get your trapping supplies at Cots Bros. Trap harder, work hard. Trap smarter, work harder. Enjoy the success that follows Cots Bros has what you need from a full selection of baits and lures to traps to all the different supplies that you're going to need on the trap line. Go to cotsbros.com. On X, use the Hunt app. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS using your phone's GPS capabilities along with OnX's dozens of layers, including landowner information, aerial imagery, and tons of different uh, layers that will give you all kinds of information on land use, uh, land features, and everything else that's going to help you make decisions, whether it be on the trap line, hunting, fishing, real estate, whatever you want to do. I use it farming all the time. On xmaps.com, use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, to get 20% off of your first purchase on the Onyx website. And I spent a lot of time on the app in my short martin fisher trap line this season just kind of looking and thinking and analyzing uh, set spacing and different decisions that i make in sort of determining where i'm going to set traps and how far apart i'm going to set them good topic for a future uh, discussion i've got a whole list though we're not going to get to that today we got a pile of things to talk about guys i've been running a list i haven't done a podcast in a long time so I've kind of been out of it. I've been I haven't really had my head in the game, and so it, it's probably showing a little bit, especially in the lack of podcast episodes here during the season. But hey, we have good times in life. We have hard times, and this is a little bit of a rough patch. And hopefully, we're going to get through it, and everything's going to be just great. But until then, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna work on it. But I think we'll start by talking about my trap line just a little bit. Um, actually, I'm adding a few things to the list here as I uh, as I get looking through it. I should probably talk fur market a little bit just to give you guys an update on that. But let's start by talking about my trap line. So, uh, great, great start to the trap line. I uh, decided on what I was going to do. I just I wasn't super excited about. It. I could not get into it for some reason this year. It's just been. It's been so odd, and I've got so many other things going on, and boy, it's been hard. It's been hard. Um, anyway, I finally got into the zone a little bit. I got things prepped, and I was ready. I'd done, I'd done some trapping a little bit for beaver and muskrats before that, but uh, getting into uh, setting out a Martin Fisher line. I got my plans. I took me up until the day before the season to where I really – before I really decided where I was going to go. But I had an idea where I wanted to go. I had my traps, had everything ready to go, the bait and all that prepped. 
And the day before I was going to go out and set traps, uh, my kids wanted to go hunting. So we went out in the woods for a little while. And uh, on our way out in the dark, the gas tank fell off the truck and basically got destroyed and disconnected. And we broke down and we were stuck. And so that was, we got out of the woods, got my wife to come pick us up. Fortunately, we had cell service where we were. And uh, two days later, and about $800 in two days worth of my time, getting the truck out, finding another gas tank, and uh, buying all kinds of different supplies, and renting space in a shop, and getting everything put back together before I was ready to go. And at that point, I was so sunk financially, and I was pretty well to the point where I just was going to, I decided I had to set a trap line close to home. And so I set a close line, um, not ideal habitat. I knew that going into it, not an ideal place for that. Uh, it was lower elevation, uh, lower latitude, generally macro habitat, pretty cut over, was not, not core Martin habitat, not the places that I go to out in the big woods where I, I set my typical Martin trap line and uh, that showed so I, I set a pretty short line but I um, it showed in, in the Martin numbers Martin numbers were very very low I caught a ton of weasels uh, that was really successful I, I think I caught like 25 weasels in a couple of weeks that's uh, yeah that's that's a big number for for my typical catch uh, for weasels uh, did pretty good on fishers. Uh, caught quite a few fishers in that area, but it just, you know, it was just kind of a, it, it was a, it was enough to get it out of my system to be able to say, uh, you know, I set out a trap line. Um, it would be, would have been very difficult to go the season without trapping for Martin and Fisher. So I'm glad that I did it, but I was not one for the record books. Let's put it that way. But that's all pulled over and done with working up for, I only filmed, uh, I only basically had one video, and I know I've put these out on YouTube a lot in the past. Uh, takes a lot of effort, and it takes, it, it, it kind of really distracts from enjoying trapping sometimes to, to film it, but I do, you know, I've, I've filmed all, the last few years, I've filmed all my, most of my Martin and Fisher trapping, uh, but I start looking back this year and, and just the mode that I was in, I wasn't really psyched about it. And I looked at the the views on the YouTube videos from past seasons and the monetization, the revenue that I got from it and compared the time that I put into it. And it was like, it, it, I, I just looked at it and I thought, you know what, if I'm not going to if I'm not really, really psyched about doing this, it's not worth doing. So I did. I, I, I put together one video, but the rest of the time that I was out there, I, I did not film, and I just kind of just kind of enjoyed myself and, and kept a low profile on it. But that's out there if you want to go check out the YouTube video that I did. It's like an hour long. I think maybe a little over an hour long. And uh, there's some pretty cool things on there. There's some, some uh, pretty interesting mishaps and and some neat catches, so you can check that out. And the rest of it, well, well maybe we'll talk about it from time to time here this winter. But uh, I, it was it was just me by myself and enjoying things and uh, and getting out there in the woods. And you know, it's so ironic just the way the YouTube algorithm works. I I spend hours and hours on on filming and editing and putting together these trapline videos, and the people that watch them just love them. But that one that I did, I think it's got like 6,000 views. And I did like a 20-minute video where I sat down here and talked about fur prices here in the in the trapping shed before the season. And that thing's got like 60,000 views. It's got over 10 times the amount of views as my full-on trapline check uh, video. So it's just, it's just so weird. I mean, you could sit down and spend almost no time on something and uh, if the algorithm decides to pick that up, then boom. So I I still haven't figured out. I'm definitely not a professional YouTuber. Um, I just play one once in a while. But we'll talk about fur prices here in a minute. But first, uh, guys, let's talk trapping lure. My goodness, it, it is just 
mind-blowing to me going into it based on what my expectations were you know going off of the last couple of years selling trapping lure but the sale my lure sales have just gone through the roof it's a just you know, compared to what I'm used to, it's been pretty amazing. Thank you, everybody that's been buying lure. Long distance call, by far and away, the number one top seller. And long distance call is getting so popular, right? I know I've talked about it a lot here on the show in the past, and I don't want to get into it too much tonight, but uh, it is a really good lure, and that is showing. That's that's kind of proving itself out. Uh, all of the results that I've seen on my trap line over the past six or seven years using long distance call is starting to show up on other people's trap lines and they're having success with it and mentioning it to their friends and passing it on. It's just amazing how many people have uh, have bought long distance call, not only from hearing about it here on the show, but also people who have heard about it from their friends and fellow trappers. Boy, there's quite a contingency of you guys in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It's unbelievable. And I'm getting a lot of pictures from you uh, catching Martin and Fisher on your trap lines out there too. So that's really cool. Um, Selling to New York. Of course, Maine. You know, I get a lot of local guys that that buy it. And uh, and that's great. Uh, but that's kind of expected because, you know, you I'm from Maine and I'm talking about Maine trapping all the time. So I, ex- I expect to get a lot from Maine. But, uh, boy, the Midwest is just kind of blown up. So that's really cool. And there's guys I sell uh, quite a lot in Alaska and people from all over the place, all over the country, man. I mean, there's, there's uh, and, and not only long-distance calls, selling a lot of the other lures to different parts of the country. So thanks again, guys, for, for all your support. And uh, and I did spend a bunch of time stocking up. I, I had what I thought was going to, do me for the season and about halfway through I was almost out and I had to make a bunch more so I made like a quadruple batch of long distance call the last time I did it and I should be stocked up really well and uh, it's selling fast but I got lots of it in stock so go ahead and feel free to go to trappingtodaystore.com and order your lure um, and uh, and get 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 yourself some long distance call try it out or any of the other lures that we have there the fur market okay what do we've got going on there for folks who are um in northern states if you're listening to me right now it's towards it's just between christmas and the new year very shortly uh, fur harvesters is probably going to be running a route in your location so be sure to check that out go to furharvesters.com and check out their routes for your state it's they're mostly just going to be in northern states uh, but you're going to want to check that and uh, make sure that you get in touch with the person running the route so that uh, you can get your first cent off to the auction because there are some items that are actually looking pretty good, uh, but I think you want to get them in quick because these markets are relatively shallow and they have the chance to get saturated pretty quick and potentially see some um, lower prices later on in the season. So you go to fur harvesters, if you go to trappers and ranchers, uh, go to pickup schedules, I'm just clicking on U.S. shippers, pickup schedules, because I'm in the U.S., and uh, I've got a bunch of states there, so Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Maine, Michigan, uh, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Vermont, Wisconsin, and Wyoming have, uh, have pickup schedules for Maine. I had I did have one or two people ask me about this, so just so you know, the guy in Maine is going to be running routes on January 6th and January 13, 14, and 20. And the 6th, he's going to be up my way in northern Maine. He's actually actually going to be starting at his house in western Maine and going over towards Bangor and then heading north. I think actually I think he'll go to Augusta and then head north. Um, and let's see, oh, no, that's, that's not, he's not going to head my way up the 6th, it's going to be on the 14th, so the 6th is just Old Town, Bangor, uh, Augusta, and through that area, the 13th, he's going to start heading down east, and then go up to Lincoln, and the 14th, it'll be, uh, up north, Aroostook County, and, uh, 
and Patton, basically Holton, Patton, North. So um, on the 14th, I'll be meeting the truck and, and sending out some fur. But anyway, you guys, you got to get it on that January date, whatever your route is for your state, in order for that to get in for the first auction, which is the end of March. If you miss that, the next pickups are going to be in April, and that's going to be for like the June auction. And by then, this whole fur market might be, uh, you know, it might be totally different than what we're seeing today. So uh, be sure to, to check that out if you have the opportunity. If you don't, or if you want to sell your fur quicker, Grunwald Fur and Wool uh, has their routes posted. I, I just saw that they've, uh, they've got routes up. GFW or GWFCO.com. And let's pull that up. No, it's GFW, Grunwald Fur and Wool Company.com. And uh, let's see what their routes are. The USA routes, they've got a little bit going on in Canada too, but they've got routes basically all over, mostly the Midwest. They're actually going to go up into uh, New York and Connecticut a little bit. Um, they're going to go south for folks that don't get a fur harvester's pickup down south. They're going to be in Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and Texas. So uh, check them out, and they'll write you a check rate from the truck. Price is probably not going to be quite as good, but they're they're paying they're paying good for beaver, and uh, I mean they're paying some decent prices. So uh, you get you get paid right away. So that's a benefit there too. But the uh, just going into specifics a little bit for the way this market has been, it's items that are not produced in very high numbers uh, and are really high quality like your northern fur and your species that are not common throughout the whole United States or North America. Those are, um, are still doing well. They have been doing well. Probably some room for increases there, particularly with Martin. Uh, there was a couple of Martin auctions took place while well, the, the Russian sable auction took place recently as well as the uh, Thompson fur tables up in Manitoba where they sell a bunch of guys sell fur before Christmas up there and uh, both of those showed increased prices for Martin really encouraging looks like the supply has not kept up with demand for Martin so like for for my Martin I averaged like 40 bucks last year at fur harvesters that's probably going to go up. It's going to be probably steady or increase this year. And if you're up in northern Canada or Alaska, you have the potential to, to see maybe $60 to $80 Martin averages this year. Uh, maybe even a little bit more. So uh, that's that's uh, that's been really encouraging. I think Fisher is going to do pretty well too, uh, $40 to $50. That's kind of steady with what we had in our predictions before the season. Other species like that, like wolf, lynx, wolverine, are all looking pretty good. Um, your staple standby for items like uh, muskrat and coyote and raccoon, not good at all. Uh, might be able to sell some of that, but uh, there's a lot of huge backlog of muskrat pelts uh, at fur harvesters. Uh, no one's really paying much for them. Um Raccoon, the better raccoon, Grunwald is buying some of the better raccoons. Uh, they'll buy them, but uh, anything that's not XXL or better, or XL or better, and is not caught when it's prime, there's not going to be much demand for them at all. Coyotes, uh, very hard to find a market for coyote. You might not be able to sell any unless they're really good. That's short and sweet in the fur market, and as usual, you can go to trappingtoday.com to see the full fur market forecast for the 2023-24 season. All right, other news, the stand project. This is something that was from way early days of the podcast years ago. I actually interviewed Stan Zeray from the TV show Yukon Men. He's up in the little village of Tanana, Alaska on the Tanana and Yukon Rivers, a uh, little tiny isolated village. Stan has an incredibly fascinating life story from Boston, Massachusetts area. Uh, really troubled kid and growing up and kind of searching for his way and moved all over the place and finally found himself up in the wilderness and uh, eventually into Alaska, homesteaded out in the middle of nowhere, uh, 
made his way to Tana and found found and created a life for himself that uh, has been incredibly rewarding. Stan is now in his early 70s. He was uh, main character on the the show Yukon Men. If you haven't had a chance to see that show, I'd highly recommend watching it. It's a great look into the lifestyle of how people live up there, including a lot of trapping. They did a lot of a lot of stuff on trap lines. So, one of the cameramen from the TV show, after the show was canceled, really, he struck up a friendship with Stan. He spent a lot of time filming Stan during the show production. And after the show ended, he he didn't really want things to end. He kind of thought that there was more of a story to be told, particularly about Stan and Stan's life up there and his background and, and everything else. So... They started up a Kickstarter project to help pay for them to go back out there and do some filming on their own with Stan out on his trap line, uh, out on the river catching salmon in the summertime, on the the fish wheel at fish camp, uh, running the dogs, working the dogs, just doing everyday life stuff there in Tanana, Alaska. We talked about it quite a bit when the Kickstarter project was going on and and helped him raise money. I donated. I know several of you guys donated. And, uh, you know, I didn't put a whole bunch of money in there, but enough to hopefully help out. And then kind of things kind of went quiet. And you get it. We get an update. Those of us who donated, we were on the mailing list and we'd get an email every once in a while telling, you know, what they've done and stuff. But I really expected to see something like within a year of of that project being funded. And it never really came out. And a year went by and another year went by and another year went by. And I was like, kind of basically kind of gave up on it. I, I didn't really think they were going to do anything. And all of a sudden out of the blue, I got an email about a month and a half ago. Hey, we're finalizing the film. We're putting the finishing touches on it. And uh, actually, it was a couple few months ago, and uh, yeah, we're we're gonna put it in this film festival somewhere in Michigan, and so that actually happened. They finished up the film, they put it in this film festival. It was well received, and then for all the people who donated, they provided us with a video link to go on Vimeo and be able to watch the the thing, the full documentary. And so I watched it a couple times. It was pretty awesome, actually. And, uh, it, it just, uh, it was, it was not like the show Yukon Men. It was, it was just Stan. It was not drama. It was not staged. It wasn't, oh, let's go do this because this is cool. It was more of a, just a, a reflective look at Stan's life and sitting down with him and talking with him and his wife and, and, uh, and looking at old pictures and going along, you know, with him on the trap line and helping them with the dogs, and just kind of, it's just kind of, it was a really unique, thoughtful um, film, just just kind of showing the life of Stan. I thought it was awesome. So that was up for folks who, who did donate. I hope you had a chance to watch that. They only left, left the link up for a month, and I just checked here before I started this, and it has expired, so I can't watch it anymore couldn't figure out how to get that thing recorded and pulled off of Vimeo, but um, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I'll keep you posted if they do decide to, to put that up for sale somewhere or maybe some TV crew picks it up or something and it, and it airs somewhere, I'll let you know and hopefully more people will get a chance to see that because I think it was, it was a really neat piece of art and a, a really cool film to watch. Okay. For the rest of the show, we're going to slow down a little bit, and we're going to talk politics. I know that's what everybody wants to hear. So, this has been a long time coming. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this discussion enough justice tonight in in this conversation and the time that we have and the amount of preparation I've spent on it. I Maybe it's worthy of a more in-depth discussion and and an in-depth sort of analysis. But we're going to give a shot. And I want to talk about this because it's been brewing for a long time. And there's a number of different things that are taking place 
and they're all kind of starting to converge. And so it's a bit frustrating. It's a bit political. hate to talk politics, but it directly involves wildlife management, and it very directly involves us and affects us as trappers. So we're going to talk about the Endangered Species Act and different species that are fur bearers or adjacent to fur bearers that have been affected by the ESA and have the potential to influence us as trappers, whether they already have influenced our ability to trap or if they're going to change things for us in trapping in the future. So I want to preface this by saying all the things that I'm talking about are primarily going to apply to the lower 48 United States. If you're in Canada, if you're in Alaska, this is not going to affect you or the species that you trap there. This is just the lower 48. So I I did a video of this on YouTube about Wolverine and uh, that was... I had tons and tons of questions about Alaska. No, this does not affect, and I should have said it right off the bat there on YouTube, that this does not affect any of you trapping in Alaska or the species in Alaska. Only the lower 48. So, the Endangered Species Act was passed by Congress back in 1973. And the intention of the act was to uh, restore or prevent the further loss of species in the United States. So at the time in the U.S. we had undergone, we were undergoing kind of a crisis in uh, wildlife species conservation where we were losing a lot of species. A lot of species were declining and it was believed that, you know, the protections for these species were not adequate for management. And so uh, this federal law was put into place to ensure that if a species was deemed to be in danger of extinction, it was going to have federal protections. What are those federal protections? Well, uh, first off, those federal protections only applied where there was a federal nexus to the management of the species. In other words, if there was federal land in the area where the species was being managed, or if there was federal money involved in any projects that might influence or affect the species, then the Endangered Species Act was going to be invoked and it was going to be a factor used to determine whether projects could go ahead or whether things could be done on this federal land. So in terms of private land or private actions, no big deal. Um, The law stated that you couldn't do anything on private land that would directly uh, involve the taking of an endangered species, but you could do a lot of indirect things uh, that that didn't really uh, influence or or affect, you know, didn't result in the killing of these species. But directly, uh, direct take was was illegal, and anything that involved any federal nexus uh, was was going to um, involve some sort of a review uh, where the Endangered Species Act would be used to uh, to kind of determine whether the project was was allowed to go forward or not. And what has what that's kind of morphed into is also in addition to any federal projects or things on federal land, it's also involved included state uh, programs that allow for the take of these species or can result in the incidental take of these species. So, one of the uh, first examples of the Endangered Species Act influencing trapping directly was when Canada lynx were listed as a threatened species under the ESA. I think that was in 2001, or it might have been 2000, or somewhere right around that time frame when the lynx were listed as threatened. And uh, there, there were a couple different distinct population segments that were identified for lynx. Uh, but where, where I'm at in the northeast, we had a, a population segment there that was determined to be threatened. And they the this has completely upturned and 
changed and flipped trapping in Maine on its head. The reason was the first few years after Lynx were were listed on the ESA, it wasn't really a big deal because it didn't affect anything, didn't change anything. 90 plus percent of Maine is privately owned. So there wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a bunch of logging or a bunch of things on, uh, on our industrial timberland changed because there was no federal money and no federal land involved in all the private timberland harvesting that takes place here. So there really, there really wasn't a change to how those companies operated. And for us as trappers, there wasn't really a change either. There was still a lot of evaluation going on to determine where links were, how many of them we had. There was a lot of research going on back in the early 2000s. I remember this. And uh, what, what they ended up learning, what the state ended up learning as a result of all of these research projects was that the uh, aftermath of the spruce budworm, which was a uh, disease that killed primarily balsam fir trees here in northern Maine, basically wiped out large swaths of softwood forest in the northeast. And after um, the spruce budworm killed all those trees and those trees were salvaged, there were these vast rolling clear cuts on the landscape for uh, hundreds of thousands of acres. And uh, there was just massive change in forest stand where all of a sudden you had mixed and mature forest that was off. Just by the way, awesome Martin habitat was good for overwintering whitetail deer, and we had lots of bobcats that would feed on those deer. And as that changed, the forest turned into these vast swaths of regenerating young forest, which was ideal habitat for snowshoe hare, which is the species that supports is, is the primary prey base for Canada lynx. And all of a sudden, we had these lynx start to move into the area and multiply and lynx became very abundant very healthy populations as all of this post spruce budworm forest began to mature into prime canada lynx snowshoe hare habitat so the population was increasing while the federal government was listing these species as threatened and the the problem associated with that which i'm going to mention as we begin to discuss wolverine or grizzly bear here in the future is that when you list a species and say that it needs to be recovered which the dsa does at a time when that species is perhaps at its highest point in that particular piece of habitat there is no chance for recovery the species already is recovered based on the data that you have if you say that recovered status is is actually threatened your recovery goals are are completely um, n- not applicable to this template this landscape that the species is on and so the species was listed as threatened species was very abundant became incredibly frustrating for people on the ground hunters trappers foresters we would see lynx everywhere. See them all the time. They were extremely common. In fact, we, I've, I've still, I still don't think I've seen a bobcat uh, uh, north of where I live. I've seen a couple south of here, but um, we essentially have no bobcats here, which they're not protected. They're not endangered. This far north, we've lynx. We see lynx all the time, and it was incredibly frustrating to see that these. The species was federally protected, but we saw them everywhere. Not as big a deal at the time early on because it wasn't really affecting us. But all of a sudden, the wildlife um, animal rights advocates started getting their hands into things and realized pretty quickly that they could use the Endangered Species Act as a weapon, not for conservation, but to ban and eliminate certain practices that they didn't agree with, primarily trapping. And so they started filing lawsuits in federal court stating that uh, the state's trapping program in Maine was resulting in the 
death of Canada lynx and the capture and take of Canada lynx, which was a violation of the Endangered Species Act. And a judge determined that that was correct, that the Endangered Species Act stated that state program could not result in the take or capture of Canada lynx without explicit permission from the Fish and Wildlife Service through an incidental take permit. So there were several lawsuits went back and forth. We won, we lost, we won, we lost. It went all over the place. But essentially, long story short, Canada lynx were used to um, halt trapping in the state until we came up with an incidental take permit. The incidental take permit was issued, but the ITP resulted in us having to give up uh, the use of body grip traps on dry land outside of the use of lynx exclusion devices. That's why if you see my YouTube videos, I'm carrying around those big bulky boxes that um, have a four inch by four inch opening and are 18 inches from the trap to the opening. That's to prevent any possibility that the Canada lynx could get caught in our traps. So we had to start using those. Our foothold traps, uh, we had to completely change the rules on foothold trapping. We They ban the use of drags. We can only use stake down traps. The maximum jaw spread was limited to five and three eighths inches on the inside jaw spread of our traps. Traps had to have three swivels. The chain had to be anchored at the center point of the base plate of the trap. Um, can't remember what all the other ones. And then of course, mandatory reporting. If you catch a lynx, you gotta call in. A biologist has to be there to uh, evaluate the lynx and release it and do whatever else needs to be done to make sure it doesn't get hurt or it isn't injured, and so on and so on. And so it has really upended our, our trapping program here. It's changed the way we trap. It's made it incredibly difficult to trap, um, and uh, it, it's been very frustrating. Well, um, here's where we get into politics. The We go back and forth between Democrat and Republican administrations, and I'm not here to tell you which one's better or which one's worse. I am here to tell you that in general, Republican administrations are friendlier for trappers and Democrat administrations are less friendly for trappers. When it comes to state local politics, that's not necessarily the case. We have a lot of Democrats here that are pro-trapping in my area. Um, I'm sure there are Republicans in other places and other states that are anti-trapping. But um, on a federal level, basically under the Trump administration, they started to move towards delisting of Canada Lynx. It was pretty easy to do because it was very clear to see that Canada Lynx did not deserve listing in the first place. They were recovered, quote-unquote recovered. They never needed recovery to begin with. And there's really nothing that the, that the listing... You know, listing back in the day caused the ban of DDT, where it was killing bald eagles and a bunch of other birds, and resulted in the recovery of the bald eagle in the United States. That was the great success story of the ESA. Other than that, I can't think of any cases where the ESA has resulted in a recovery of an endangered species. There might be a few here and there, but in general, it's more been used of a, as a weapon by environmentalist groups than anything else. So the plan was for links to be uh, delisted, and I suspect a lot of our state restrictions would probably have stayed in place. Uh, for quite a while after that delisting, um, just because you know the state, our state's very conservative in terms of uh, trying to um, cover all their bases, make sure they're doing doing things by the book. Um, and however, somehow that process, a couple years went by, and we never heard any updates. We're trying to figure out what was going on, and it just kind of went away. And then the Biden got elected and brand new administration, new head of the Fish and Wildlife Service, knew all that. And all of a sudden, just recently, in the last few weeks, we see a bunch of news articles come out about Canada Lynx. And uh, this article from the Associated Press says, U.S. proposes plan to help the snow-dependent Canada Lynx before warming shrinks its habitat. This is a $31 million recovery plan for Canada Lynx that the Fish and Wildlife Service has just introduced. So they're not planning to delist the lynx. In fact, they're uh, planning to um, 
pony up a whole bunch of money to recover them, supposedly. So, uh, Billings, Montana, U.S. officials proposed $31 million recovery plan for Canada Lynx on Friday in a bid to help the snow-dependent wildcat species that scientists say could be wiped out in parts of the contiguous U.S. by the end of the century. The proposal marks a sharp turnaround from five years ago when officials in Donald Trump's presidency said Lynx had recovered and no longer needed protection, which was absolutely right and based on completely based on scientific facts and our experiences here in northern Maine, by the way. That's my um, my little jab in that. After their numbers had rebounded in some areas, President Joseph Biden's administration in 2021 reached a legal settlement with environmental groups to retain threatened species protections for lynx that were imposed in 2000. And so the administration reached a legal settlement to, uh, to keep protections on lynx, thus uh, suspending the plans to delist them. So it says populations uh, New Hampshire, Maine, and Washington State are most at risk as warmer temperatures reduce habitat for lynx and their primary food snowshoe hares, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service documents indicate. But declines for lynx would be seen in boreal forests across the contiguous U.S. under even the most optimistic warming scenario that officials considered, the newly released documents show. So here's what I here's what comes to mind for me. This is the same thing that's happening with Wolverine, which we, I hope we'll get into tonight. But they are saying that lynx, which, by the way, became much more widespread in northern Maine and the northeastern U.S. because of timber harvest practices. They're saying that global warming is what's, what, indeed, what actually threatens lynx, these populations of lynx. Okay. So you're putting the species on the list because of global warming. What I see personally, and I see the same parallel with Wolverine, and I'm, we're going to see it with grizzly bear, I'm sure, is one administration comes in and gets the species listed. Another administration comes in 20 years later, says we're going to delist them. They shouldn't have been listed in the first place. We're going to use the delist. We're going to use X factor, whatever it is, timber management as a justification for delisting because we can't just say this is political, which it actually is. Another administration comes in and says, well, that last administration was wrong, but we can't use the same data that they used to show that they actually do need to be protected. So we got to use something else. So what do we got? Well, global warming. So it's just a back and forth based on whoever happens to be in political power at the time and who their lobbyist groups are and who they're influenced by and, and uh, what they actually favor. But they're using the data and twisting it to make the story that they want to be told. And so here's the big thing that I don't understand. If you're going to use global warming as justification to list Canada Lynx and Wolverine, by the way, which is what they're doing, how on earth are you ever going to get those species delisted? When you turn global warming around? I mean, these are things that are at play that are just far and above beyond anything that we have control over. And there's no way in my mind that you're going to change the climate because this species is listed in the Endangered Species Act. Now, that's not to say that the species might not be threatened by a change in climate. We know that climate does influence these species. If Indeed, we saw declines in Canada lynx populations and declines in wolverine populations that we could tie to the climate. I understand, even though we can't change the climate necessarily, I get it. Let's list them. I understand. It makes sense. In that case, they deserve to be listed if they are indeed threatened with extinction. But, guys... We're seeing the exact opposite. 
The past 20 years, lynx populations have increased. The past 20 years, wolverine populations have increased. We're seeing them spread further. Numbers are higher. And so we're going to go ahead and put a stop to all of this and say, whoa, these two species need to be protected because of global warming when their populations have actually increased. You can look at it the way you want to, but to me that clearly, clearly politics is at play here. That's my opinion. So, what's the recovery plan? Um, so, they're looking at a, looking for a minimum of 875 links in the contiguous U.S., which we actually have 1,100 right now. So, they're saying even with the recovery plan, they're still going to have fewer links over a 20-year period. Um, 400 in the Northeast, 200 in the Rockies, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that I saw, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I believe they talked about introducing them to Yellowstone National Park and other places to try to increase their range in higher elevation areas where there's more snow and uh, and so on. So um, that's, the, that's the deal which is going on with Lynx. So guys that are in Maine that think that we're going to get rid of the Lynx exclusion devices, we're going to get... Our old trapping regulations back. Sorry, guys, not gonna happen. Uh, not even, not a chance. I, I, it's just, it's gonna, it's not gonna get better. So uh, that's links. So they're still listed. Let's uh, move on and talk about Wolverine. So this was a new thing that showed up on the radar recently, and uh, Wolverines have been back and forth with. Um, listing delisting for a long time i mentioned in my youtube video on wolverines that i actually had the chance uh, of course i had the chance to trap wolverines in alaska which was awesome it was an incredible experience but um i actually the first time i set a trap for wolverine was in montana it was back in like 2010 ish when uh, you could still trap for wolverine in montana i believe in 2012 they finally closed the season after getting too much pressure from the feds and uh, there were environmental groups that were had lawsuits going on at the time. To uh, p- they petitioned for a listing of wolverines under the Endangered Species Act. This whole time, of course, wolverine populations, uh, ironically, were increasing. So, uh, so yeah, there's that. But, um, but this has been a le- ongoing legal battle that that uh, has been at play for a very long time. So to back up just a bit, um, a species can't just get put on the endangered species list like that. They have to undergo a status assessment. The Fish and Wildlife Service does. They gather all the data from the different states, different areas, and they look at the biological data. They look at all the different factors influencing the species, and they come up with a, uh, a proposed decision. And then that goes out for public comment, and that comes back, and then they come out with a I guess a final listing decision so it's a very long process and anytime in that process it can get interrupted um, by different actions of the courts lawsuits and and so forth so and and what happens in that process a lot of times is you have different changes in administration and changes in direction based on who gets elected particularly president and who they appoint at the different federal agencies so uh, Wolverine were kind of on the, the track to getting listed under previous, I believe under the Obama administration. Uh, there were several petitions for them to be listed. It was um, that there really had not been any decision made yet. And then the Trump administration came in and did an updated assessment and determined that Wolverines did not need to be listed. They did not warrant listing under the Endangered Species Act. I think the idea behind that was they said, you know, the, the data shows the populations are actually increasing. Their range is, is expanding. And the states are all have adequate protections in place to ensure that the species would not become endangered. And so they put that together, said, boom, they don't need to be listed. Immediately, environmental groups uh, sued 
the administration saying that that was not justified, that was an incorrect decision. And a federal judge in Montana sided with the environmental groups and said, Fish and Wildlife Service, you got to go back to the drawing board. You did not factor in certain things like climate change uh, into your decision, and you need to re-look at your decision. Well, in the meantime, the administration changed to the Biden administration while this was was going on, and just recently, the new Fish and Wildlife Service uh, decision was made to indeed list Wolverine as in, in threatened under the Endangered Species Act. So you say, well, they're all looking at the same data. How can this be? Well, a couple of things that, you know, you can get creative with data and, and uh, two different people can interpret data different ways. It's very easy to use the same data. Um, or to find suddenly find updated data that agrees with what your decision is. Uh, I, I'm not saying that anybody's necessarily biased. I am saying that data can be interpreted a number of different ways. But from my reading of it, they basically said that the previous decision not to list Wolverine did not factor in... Uh, updated climate change models which showed potentially decreasing snowpack and decreasing uh, suitable habitat for wolverine because they are dependent on on deep snows and they also said there was some updated genetics data that showed that well maybe the genetic diversity of the existing population is not as good as we had previously thought and then finally there was some information about some highways in canada that they said are limiting the dispersal of wolverine from the core habitat in Canada into the United States, into like Montana and Idaho. And therefore, because of that limited dispersal, there is not going to be enough genetic inflow from Canada in order to ensure the long-term viability of the species. So for those reasons, they did determine that, um, that wolverine were going to be listed and wolverine uh, believe are now listed officially. There we might. There was a 30-day comment period, but I think they're they're officially there now. So they are protected under the Endangered Species Act. Now, one important thing in this document is that they did actually talk about, which I don't believe was ever mentioned when the Lynx document came out many years ago. They actually did talk about uh, trapping and the potential threats to trapping. Um, of course, there is no trapping, no legal trapping of wolverine in the lower 48 since Montana eliminated their season. But the concern, of course, is that the uh, there is potential for trappers that are targeting other species to catch, uh, to catch wolverine, potentially kill wolverine in their traps, incidental to, to trapping for other species. So they address trapping um, in the status assessment. And I'm going to try to just talk a little bit about it in some of the Federal Register document that has comments and responses to comments. Uh, this is this is pretty good. I mean, they, they retain this from the 2020 uh, decision that was overturned uh, that based on other factors. But they actually did retain this and, and maintain... The position, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service maintains the position that incidental trapping of wolverine is not a threat, not a current threat. So, um, said, we received several public comments during our request for information claiming that the North American wolverine faces threats from indiscriminate trapping in the contiguous United States or are negatively impacted by incidental trapping. Our 2020 response summarized in our October 13, 2020 withdrawal, we stated that trapping or hunting of wolverines was not allowed in any state within the range of wolverine in the contiguous U.S. We presented the legal protections afforded to wolverines in each state. We summarized what we know, knew at the time about incidental trapping. In the Wolverine SSA report, we provide a summary of the number of wolverines that have been incidentally trapped in Idaho, 18 since 1965, including six known to be released alive and seven known mortalities, Montana, four since 2013, 
three mortalities and one released unharmed. And Wyoming, two since 1996, one mortality, one released unharmed. Both Idaho and Montana are implementing trapper education programs to minimize non-target wolverine captures. We noted that regulated trapping and hunting of wolverines occurs in parts of Alaska and Canada and appears to be sustainable based on population and density estimates. Our 2023 response, so this is the updated response. Legal trapping of wolverines has not occurred in the contiguous United States in the past 10 years. Wolverine trapping remains closed throughout the western United States, and wolverines have retained various protected status designations in the U.S. within their current range. Therefore, legal direct trapping is no longer a stressor on wolverines in the contiguous U.S. In the past 10 years, legal, lethal incidental trapping of wolverines has been minimal, one to two animals per year or fewer, primarily occurring in Idaho and Montana. New information suggests that recent overharvest from trapping has occurred in southern Canada in areas that could provide dispersing individuals to the contiguous United States. Trapping in southern Canada appears to have had a more negative effect on wolverine populations in Canada than previously thought. Legacy effects of recent unsustainable trapping levels in a portion of the southern Rocky Mountains of Canada could limit dispersal of individuals in the contiguous United States in an area where wolverine connectivity between U.S. and Canada is vital to the genetic and demographic health of U.S. wolverine population. Um, okay, so they go on and on. There's there's tons and tons of pages of these documents, but the, there was they mentioned it there, and they also mentioned it somewhere else that I'd seen earlier in the document that, you know, based on the current rules and regulations in the state, we're not considering... Uh, trapping to be a factor that influences wolverine populations now i don't remember whether they they uh, mentioned trapping at all in the 2000 uh, listing of canada links uh, i'd have to go back and look and, and see what whether it was there but here's the fact here's what happened regardless of the fish and wildlife service determination or decision or opinion the animal rights groups came in and filed a lawsuit in federal court stating that our trapping program was threatening Canada lynx. And it wasn't the opinion of the federal government, wasn't the opinion of the Fish and Wildlife Service, it was the opinion of one federal court judge who sat on that trial and determined that the antis were right. Trapping did present a threat to Canada lynx, and that was going to be unacceptable. And because of that, we had the complete upheaval of our trapping program in Maine. My fear is that that's what's going to happen here in uh, in the western United States, in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, um, potentially any states that have wolverine in them and have trapping programs. And uh, they're probably going to pick off whatever state they think is the most vulnerable. You don't think this is true. Okay. So we're going to back up and uh, I'm going to peek over to a, let's look at a meat eater article uh, that looked into this. And uh, there's another article with a, a parallel with wolves and grizzly bears that was recently in the news. Uh, but I want to, I want to take a quick peek at this meat eater article because it, it speculates here on what might happen. The question is, or the title of the article is, will Wolverine ESA listing shut down wolf trapping. On November 30, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced additional protections for wolverines listing as threatened. New listing prohibits harvest of wolverines, but a proposed incidental take rule would, would allow wolverines to be killed as bycatch related to legal wolf trapping activities. Conservation organizations are celebrating the ruling as a crucial step in the recovery of the species. Some of these organizations, however, are already hinting that the new designation could be used to limit wolf trapping. Wolverines have long been in the heated center of the heated debate, blah, blah, blah. Um, as part of the road to recovery, legal trapping of wolverines is currently banned. The continental U.S., Alaska, and Canada do both allow for trapping still. And while the new listing doesn't change that, it might provide the legal fodder needed by conservation organizations to put a stop to wolf trapping that occasionally results in incidental wolverine harvest. It wouldn't be the first time conservation groups have fought tooth and nail for the species. So they go into a little bit of the background on the wolf listing. 
the petition in 2013, the, the decision not to list in 2020, and then the, the lawsuits that followed. Um, as part of the listing process, the Fish and Wildlife Service revisited species assessment, identified several potential threats to wolverines, primary threat habitat loss as a result of climate change. Um, also listed as a potential threat is incidental trapping as bycatch from illegal wolf trapping. In the Rocky Mountain West, the service acknowledges that new wolf trapping laws in Montana and Idaho may have the potential to increase the amount of incidental capture of wolverines. Specifically in reference to recent increases in season lengths, wolf tags available per person, and monetary incentives for trapping wolves. However, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service goes on to say, We expect recent changes to wolf trapping regulations in Idaho and Montana to have little effect on wolverines at a population level, as long as trapping is done in a manner to limit wolverine bycatch. Currently, most western states already have restrictions in place to limit accidental wolverine harvest, such as trap size and tension limits. In fact, it's a blah blah blah, okay, details. Despite this, attorneys working on behalf of environmental groups already appear to be gearing up to fight for even stronger protections, namely some kind of ban or reduction in wolf trapping under the pretense of protecting wolverines. Numerous environmental groups have already issued statements hinting at such action. Matthew Bishop, an attorney with the Western Environmental Law Center, doesn't mince his words. We are concerned about the allowances for trapping in wolverine habitat. We doubt it's possible to trap without the risk of take. Wolverines, a crucial species for many ecosystems throughout the western U.S., deserve the fullest protections possible. Given the small population and climate change quickly shrinking the snowy habitat wolverines rely on to survive, time is of the essence. Mike Garrity, executive director of the Alliance for the Wild Rockies, is equally as explicit. We appreciate that the service finally listed wolverines as threatened, um, but their rule, which allows trapping wolverine habitat, is a road for ex roadmap for extinction, not recovery. Wolverines or scavengers will continue to be taken if trapping is allowed to continue. Service needs to follow law like all Americans are required to do, come up with a plan to recover wolverines. So guys, this is coming. And before we get out of here, I'm going to give you a quick recent article from Montana. Federal judge shortens Montana's wolf trapping season to protect non-hibernating grizzly bears. For those of you who don't know, grizzly bears are listed under the Endangered Species Act. They have, in my opinion, recovered, in the opinion of many, recovered. And they're extremely abundant to the extent where they're attacking people. Um, killing people on a regular basis in these western states. It's unbelievable how many grizzlies are out there. Helena, Montana. A federal judge in Montana significantly shortened the state's wolf trapping season to protect grizzly bears that have not yet begun hibernating from being injured by traps. U.S. District Judge Donald Malloy Missoula granted a preliminary injunction Tuesday saying Montana's wolf trapping season can only run from January 1 through February 15. The time during which he said it is reasonably certain that almost all grizzly bears will be in dens. The order applies to all five of the state's wolf hunting districts along with Hill, Blaine, and Phillips counties in north central Montana, basically the western two-thirds of the state. Injunction remains in effect while the case moves through the courts. We are elated that Montana's grizzly bears will at least temporarily avoid the cruel harms caused by indiscriminate steel traps and snares in their habitat. Lizzie Pennick attorney for Wild Earth Guardians, said in a statement, We are optimistic that this win is a precursor to securing long-term grizzly protections. So, um, we're already seeing the Endangered Species Act being used to shorten, cut in half, the wolf trapping season in Montana. Don't tell me that this isn't going to change uh, when wolverines are now listed under the endangered species act and there are trapping programs going on in wolverine habitat we're allowed to trap in areas where there are wolverines um we have wolverines and grizzly bears in these habitats where we're trapping and we have a very hungry animal rights and environmental advocacy groups that are realizing they've got red meat here they realize, they've seen that they can be successful with the right court, the right judge, and the Endangered Species Act as a tool to limit, to curtail, to stop trapping. And so, 
that's the reason. It's not about species recovery. I think wolverines are awesome. I think grizzly bears are awesome. Wolves are awesome. They all deserve to be protected to a certain extent. They they should be managed um, in a responsible manner that allows their long-term sustainability. But they should be managed, not protected. These federal protections um, take management out of the hands of local governments and state governments, and they allow the uh, management of wildlife in the courts. And that's just not a win-win for anybody, guys. So with that, um, I hope you enjoyed that politics talk. Uh, just uh, you know, keep in mind what's going on here and uh, what's at play when we discuss uh, all these different listings in the Endangered Species Act, how that might affect you. Because you never know. You could, you could wake up and your state's looking like Maine and, and uh, you're going to have to start using a lot of the tools and devices that we're using. You've got all these crazy rules and you wonder what the heck happened to your state and uh, what happened to trapping. Um, I, I, I honestly hope that that, that isn't the case, but uh, we got to stay vigilant and keep an eye on this stuff. Get involved in your local trapping association. Call your legislators. Um, call your U.S. representatives and uh, and try to try to kind of turn the tide uh, a, a little bit in our direction because it, it's going to be an uphill battle and it's it's a very very difficult uh, situation that that we're all put in with with all this endangered species stuff going on. With that, it's been a while. Great to uh, to finally catch up with you guys again. I've got a uh, my list is uh, is only half checked off here, so I've got a bunch to uh, talk about in future episodes. I hope we can get back with you before too long and talk trapping again. Till next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode.